The Cry of the Children by Mrs. John Van Voorst. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Cry of the Children Human Documents in the Case of the New Slavery by Mrs. John Van Voorst. Saturday Evening Post, March 10, 1906. Editor's Note this is the first of a series of articles by Mrs. Van Voorst, in which the victims of the new slavery tell their own stories. There is one fact regarding the industries in America which concerns every man and woman throughout the land. Since cotton mills began to spring up like mushrooms and sociological philanthropy began to be the fashion, we have heard much about child labor. So much, indeed, has it been a matter of discussion that the very life has been taken out of the phrase itself and it has come to have no meaning it suggests reports and dull discourses and lobbying for legal reform and dry statistics it has assumed the form of a mere stereotyped heading which serves as a watchword to deter the hurried reader from wasting any time on articles he always skips yet back of these two words linked incongruously together is the fact that concerns us all an outrageous fact that cannot be denied a fact that need only be presented from its human side in order to touch every heart that beats for the good of the country and the welfare of others in our thriving mills both north and south there are thousands and thousands of little children at work as i formulate this simple statement i can hear a chorus of protest echoes the past objections which have been made for years by those whose interest it is not to acknowledge the truth in response i have only to say that i started a skeptic myself upon a tour of inspection regarding what i held to be sensational reports about child labor after remaining six weeks in various cotton mill towns of maine new hampshire georgia and alabama i have determined to relate only what i saw all too sensational, alas. Believing the simple account of realities to be the most convincing, and daring to hope that it may serve as an appeal, and that it may stir those whom it touches into procuring some remedy for an existing condition of things, which is contrary to every principle of civilization and Christianity. The facts of the case as regards the law are these. Each state being free to impose upon manufacturers what regulations it pleases, there is a variety of labor problems to choose from in studying any single American industry. Not having unlimited time in which to make a general investigation, I selected as centers of observation for those studies of child labor, Maine, where there are good laws poorly enforced, New Hampshire, where there is no factory inspection, Alabama, where the laws are poor and the enforcement poorer, Georgia, where there are no laws at all. I confined my visits almost entirely to the woolen and cotton mills because more children are employed there than in the other complicated manufactures, and because also by making a comparative study of the same industry under different conditions it was possible to arrive at some general conclusions regarding it. 
to be sure even the most rapid reformer could not hope that business be run as a philanthropy and the question might easily be asked whether once a model child labor law had obtained there were still any profit to be made by the cotton mill owners the nearest approach to an ideal state of affairs being that which exists in massachusetts i made also a sojourn at fall river studying there the evolution of reform and its practical effects both upon the well-being of the employees and the welfare of employers but if the articles which follow make a slight pretense of tracing the history of an industry their most earnest purpose is to get a hearing for the little children who toil to let them speak for themselves to show something of their lives which will be eloquent in claiming for them protection legal and humane to sound their cry listen for it in what i am going to tell a complaint you ask used as you are to the wielding of charity recipients a complaint why the children of the mills are an army of tiny pilgrims whose miserable bodies in the onward march are but the vehicle for a spirit that no suffering can repress victims of ignorance and avarice robbed of health by the heavy burdens too early placed upon their fragile shoulders denuded of hope they trudge forward in life's way with a fortitude and determination which makes their cry less a complaint than a summons the memory of faces such as theirs clings in the mind with lingering tenacity faded mask of withered flesh dark eyes gazing out of pale swollen brows all the ugliness visible which deprivation and toil can practice upon the human features yet illuminating this solid tragic image an expression that clothes as the sun does for whole days behind clouds which seem to diffuse and magnify its brilliance the bringing about of any modification in social conditions is in a republican country like ours determined by popular opinion and this irrepressible force is composed of so many minor opinions that no one is excused on the ground that what he thinks can't make any difference from taking an interest in such a national question as this of child labor census bulletins show that there are at work in the united states over a million and a half children between the ages of ten and fifteen twenty five percent of all of the textile operations in the south are under sixteen two thousand girls under thirteen are doing night work in pennsylvania ninety two thousand are employed at this age or younger in new york state but it is not statistics that we are looking for considered thus as mere figures in an official statement these thousands of children seem like one of the necessary elements in a great industrial organization how are they designated on the payrolls of the great mills how are they alluded to familiarly by employers not even by the generic name of children they are called very pertinently hands their hands and what they can do with them are all that attract the manufacturer for him the rest of their little persons from the youth that is repressed within them to the soul to which not even greed can attain is of minor consequence yet it is only by taking time to think of these hands as individuals that they can appeal to us from a human point of view 
it is just this life of theirs therefore which the mill disregards that i would aim to make the subject of these articles the life not as it manifests itself in so many mechanical gestures with relation to a machine but the inward life the life of sentiment and feeling the home life the character of the children their occupations outside of working hours their pleasures and their own opinions about child labor we don't want to hear any horrors this is a remark often made among the less militant of the fairer sex physical suffering squalor poverty are not the only horrors paucity of spirit lack of compassion and indifference can also come under the comprehensive heading those who are all stirred up by what they read and who take no action or are apt rather to be provoked with existing conditions than with their own inactivity they argue in this way what is the use of knowing about such dreadful things when we can't help them so long as there are over a million children at work for us our industrial records need such forcible cleaning up that everybody can help if those who set their shoulders to the wheel find that their hearts fail them in the effort for reform they need only consider the example of these little laborers and once hear the cry of the children in order to renew their energy and their courage after first consulting the state records at the capitol in montgomery where all corporations are registered and determining upon what centers it seemed advisable to visit i accepted a letter of introduction to the owner of a mill in birmingham and set out for that place the second city with montgomery in alabama which has attained to a population of thirty thousand the idea of a letter of introduction was to be sure incongruous with that of making a tour of investigation and though the few courteous lines i presented to the proprietor of the mills might have procured me hospitality under his own roof they sent me as an outcast from his factory gates it was of no interest to him that a piece should be written about his help this he made quite clear and having done so he closed the door peremptorily leaving me without to meditate upon some more successful method of obtaining entrance to the factories i had determined to visit profiting by the presence at birmingham of several ladies who had been more or less active in passing the only laws which place any restraint upon alabama manufacturers i called upon them before proceeding to anniston and gathered from their conversation certain facts regarding the situation in their state my chief informant was a pretty woman of the graceful languid type we designate in a word as southern it was a shock to hear her affirm in her soft musical voice with its drawling intonation why child labor in alabama is a necessary evil do you think i exclaimed that it is just as well for a child of twelve years old to be at work as to be in school her gentle eyes reflected in their smile a feeling of inward indulgence that she said is not a fair question when you know more of these people you see that they're just like animals in the mill they have some chance of getting civilized if we made laws restricting labor we should frighten away capitalists and wreck our very surest chances of progress and prosperity she followed up her argument 
with pitiful descriptions of ignorance among the people who flock in from the hills and plains to feed the mill machinery. They don't even know enough to level the ground where they build their cabins. They fry every bit of their food, even the bread. And then she repeated the comprehensive phrase, They're just like animals. She was a stockholder, this gentle southerner, in the mills I had just attempted to visit. Oh, hideous logic which greed alone makes plausible. What part, pray, had God in creating a class like animals? And who could maintain with justice that out of such mental and moral insufficiencies a better state might come were it coupled to physical oppression and misery? Two wrongs cannot make a right, and the cursory dispatching of a whole class of people to the realm of the animal does not free the bondsman from his ultimate accounting for the soul which has passed, along with the body, into his keeping. As a matter of fact, there was a law made in 1903 which prohibited the employment of children under 12 years of age in factories unless widowed mothers or aged or disabled fathers be dependent upon the labor of such children. And the same law forbade children under 13 to work after 7 p.m., or before 6 a.m., and all children to hire out for more than 66 hours a week, day work or 48 hours night work. Why did they pass the law? responded one of my feminine informants. Why not? What difference does it make? There are no inspectors, no school laws, no truant officers, and where there is nobody to enforce a law, it can't inspire much respect. The method of asking permission having met with such rebuff, as I took to be characteristic, I determined, on reaching Anniston, upon the more simple plan of walking into any factory that might be open, and pursuing my inquiries, regardless of consequence, until I was stopped or put out. The town of Anniston lies among the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, halfway between Birmingham and Atlanta. There was little need to ask directions for reaching the mills. Over a slope of the hill in the village outskirts hung a black cloud, fed perpetually from a forest of chimneys that rose like the dark cypress trees of some Campo Santo. Thither I bent my steps. The cotton mill folks wear unwittingly a badge which distinguishes them far and wide. As I came along down over the hillside, I met a child holding in her arms another smaller child. Both were covered, their hair, their clothes, their very eyelashes even, with fine flakes of lint, wisp of cotton, fibers of the great web in which the factories imprison their victims. Hello, I said. Do you work in the mill? Yes, mum. The voice was gentle and the manner friendly. She hitched the baby, who had a tendency to slip from her tiny motherly arms, and showed me one of her fingers, done up in a loose, dirty bandage. I cut my finger right smart, she drawled, so I'm taking a day off. How old are you? Twelve. Got any brothers or sisters? I've got him. She straightened the piece of lemon stick candy in the baby's mouth as she thus called attention to him and continued. And I've got the brother in the mill. How old is he? Twelve. Twins, I asked. She smiled and shook her head. He's twelve in the mill, and he's ten outside. This little bit of humanity, taking a day off as mother to a still tinier being, 
seemed a promising sponsor, and I suggested that we walk together. She could not go to the mill with me, she explained, without first consulting her mother. So we proceeded to the settlement in which she lodged, along with the other eighty or a hundred families who manned the mills in which she worked. That's where we live. Her fleet little bare feet picked away deftly over the stony path, and she kept a hand free, when it was not laid on the baby's back, to point out to the turns that led to where she lived. Her home was one of a group of frame one-story houses perched on a slant of ground. Each house was encircled by a wooden veranda, and the order of housekeeping described itself before the eyes as a whisk of the broom which carried all dirt from the kitchen onto the porch, and another whisk which landed it on the slant of ground bedecked, in consequence, with old tin cans, decaying vegetables, pieces of dirty paper, rags, and chicken feathers. It was to the more intimate quarter, however, that I penetrated with my guide. The inside court or square upon which these homes opened their back doors was a large mud puddle overhung with the collective wash of the neighborhood. In and out of the mud puddle wallowed the younger members of the mill families, receiving from time to time admonishing reprimands from a gently irate parent who swished her long cotton wrapper over the mud court, drawling to her offspring, I sure will whip you if you all don't quit. That away's where we live, said my little companion, stepping onto the porch and depositing her load as she opened the door and ran to announce a visit to her mother. The woman turned listlessly from the sewing machine over which she was bent. Won't you come in? she called to me, dragging out a chair by the fire without getting up. Looking for work? she asked. I took a seat, glancing at the interior, which my little friend called home. The outer room was the kitchen, though it might, except for the stove, have been mistaken for a hen coop. The chickens pecked their way about the dirty floor, venturing as far even as the table, upon which stood the meager remains of a noonday meal. The second and the inner room had each a bed. An unmade bed, I was going to say, but how could a bed be made without either sheets or pillows? Two grimy counterpanes were flung in disorder across the mattresses. A few chairs, a bureau, and a machine completed the home furnishings. As the listless woman talked with me in a kindly manner about work, the baby, who had crawled in from the porch and arrived as far as its mother's skirts, now tugged at those to be taken up. His tiny hands had served as propeller across the filthy floor. The stick of lemon candy was still clutched in one, and it added to the general stickiness of the dirt with which his face and clothes were smeared. As the soldier shoulders his gun, the burden to which he is most accustomed, this mother swung her baby into her arms, and while she talked on, giving items about the cost of living and factory wages, she loosened her cotton jacket, evidently the only garment she had on, and folding the baby to her breast, lulled its whimpering. Yes, she said, we pay one fifty a week for three rooms. That's a little over six a month. I call it high. We don't get no running water. Every drop we use has got to be drawed in the yard, and we don't get no light either. 
nothing but lamps. The baby, comforted and consoled, though the stick of lemon candy had slipped from its grasp, let his hand stray over the woman's throat with little spasmodic caresses, which left in their trail smears of dirt, flecked with tiny scarlet streaks where the sharp nails had caught in the pale withered flesh. "'I reckon you all might be cold,' she said, directing the older girl to put more wood on the open grate fire, thinking apparently nothing of herself. "'We don't like it here, first rate. Maybe we'll move again. I sure do crave traveling.' "'Well, honey,' this was addressed to the baby, who had sat up with a jerk and begun to whine. The candy, picked up from the floor where it had fallen and restored to its owner's mouth, did not seem the desired thing. The mother looked at me with a knowing smile. "'I reckon I can guess what ails him. He wants his babies.' And at this, always without getting out of her chair before the machine, she reached behind her and drew from a shelf over her head two white rats. This was apparently what the baby had wanted. In the game that ensued between him and his pets, his chief delight seemed to be in seeing the rats disappear through the open-throated gown of his mother and make the tour of her bodice, wriggling, burrowing, crawling, to emerge finally from her collar at the nape of her neck. Sometimes they diversified their gyrations, proceeding upward into her hair and down again by way of her ears onto easier climbing ground. Impassable, unmoved, she talked on in her gentle, drawling voice, giving no sign whatever that she noticed the animals. It was only when the baby plunged its sharp nails into the white rat's side that she ejaculated mercifully, Quit that! You all hurt them babies! I was somewhat dazed as I proceeded presently with my little guide from this interior to the mill. The squalor and disorder of what I had seen, the ignorance and the insensibility, contrasted strangely with the friendly concern about any intention I might have to get work, the desire to help me on my way, the strange lethargic tenderness which took the form of pity for even rats. Like animals, my friend had told me, that we must wait to see. Following thus in the bare footprints of my companion, the way seemed to lead directly into the mill, the door of which stood open with no more formidable porter than a tired overseer. He nodded an indifferent yes at our request to visit the mill, and we stepped over the threshold on a level with the street and into the spinning room. There were thirty-eight hands in this spinning room, not ten of them had reached the age of twelve. It was only after I talked with them and questioned them for some twenty minutes that the second man came to me and explained in a jovial, courteous way that talking kept the hands from work. But in that twenty minutes there was a little world revealed to me of which I had known nothing and had read only such accounts as I believed to be sensational. The operation of spinning is an extremely simple one. An expert hand can run as many as a thousand bobbins or ten sides. A child of ten keeps from two to four sides, going with no further effort than the renewing of the large spools, the cleaning of the saliva from the frames, and the refilling of the spindles whose threads have snapped. 
the replenishing of the quills or bobbins is done by the smallest hands who from the process they perform in lifting the full spools off the frames to put empty ones in their place are called doffers the first child to whom i spoke here stood waiting without work for the machinery to start up he had on a cloth cap overalls and a blue cotton shirt open at the throat his face was wan his eyes blue with an intenser blue streak beneath them his mouth was full of tobacco which had caught in a dingy crust about his lips as he leaned back one foot crossed over the other expectant for the spindles to begin again their whirling he presented in his attitude and his gestures the appearance not of a child but of a gaunt man shrunk to diminutive size coming over to where he stood i began how many sides do you run a day three to four he answered how much do you make about two dollars forty cents a week then hastily i put the question how old are you gone on twelve he responded i've been working about four years i come in here when i was seven ever been to school he shook his head no am i don't know if i'd like it i'd recognize the soon work here as be in school how many hours do you work here a day from six to six the noise of the machinery was distracting and as i bent over him to catch his answers piped in a shrill nasal voice i could not but notice how fine and delicate his features were the deep eyes the high arched nose the slender lips were placed in the oval face as features only can be placed by the unerring mould that reading cast observing also the miniature shoulders that seemed to have been oppressed by some iron hand i said don't you get very tired there was a pause which made more marked the honesty of his response why well, don't never pay much attention whether i get tired or not you have an hour at noon here he pushed the cloth cap onto the back of his head and sent a long wet black line from his mouth to the floor well he said it was the man who spoke his arms akimbo his body warped in the long tussle for existence they aim to give us an hour but we don't never get more'n twenty-five minutes we all live right up there he nodded toward the square of houses clustered around the mud puddle on the brink of the slovenly hillside here the bobbins began to revolve slowly the spindles to whirl and the boy started back to his work you can't loaf much he explained when the machines are running up and down he plied on his monotonous beat lone little figure ah how far some of us could go if we worked thus in tacit submission without stopping even to question whether or not we were tired evidently waiting to join in the conversation a small boy i noticed was standing beside me his dark eyes sparkled merrily in his colorless face he was dirty and covered with lint what's your job sweepin he grinned how much do you make a day twenty cents and how old are you seven the boy at the card machine making straps for the spindle was going on ten 
He made twenty cents a day. Others I questioned were eight, nine, ten, and occasionally there was one as old as twelve. Some of my Birmingham informants had told me that there were whole families of dwarfs who came down from the mountains and took work in the mills, greatly misleading certain visitors who supposed them to be children under age. As I walked on now through the mills, talking with a twelve-year-old red-headed girl who had been four years at work, my eye suddenly fell upon a strange couple. Doubtless, I thought, some of the dwarfs against whom I had been warned. I could not take my attention from the tiniest of the tiny pair. The boy's hands appeared to be made without bones. His thumb flew back almost double as he pressed the cotton to loosen it from the revolving rod in the spinning frame. They no longer moved, those yellow anemic hands, as though directed in their different acts by a thinking intelligence. They performed mechanically the gestures which had given them their definitive form. The red-headed girl laughed and nodded in the direction of the dwarf. "'He's mo six, she said. "'He been here two years. "'He come in when he was most four. "'His little brother most four is working here now.' "'Yes, where?' "'Oh, he works on the night shift. "'He comes in about half-past five "'and stays till six in the morning.' "'I went over to the other dwarf of the couple, "'older evidently than the boy, most six. "'Below her red cotton frock "'hung a long apron which reached to the ground. "'Her hair was short and shaggy, "'her face bloated, "'her eyes like a depression in the flesh, "'and about her mouth trailed dark streaks of tobacco.' It seemed atrocious to question her. Oblivion was the only thing that could have been mercifully tendered, and even the peace of death could hardly have relaxed those tense features cast in the dogged mold of misery. How old are you? I asked. She shook her head. I don't know. What do you earn? She shook her head again. On the night shift at six, her fingers did not for a moment stop in their swift manipulation of the broken threads. Then, as though she had suddenly remembered something, she said, I've been only working here a day. Only one day? I've been working on the night shift till now. Dwarfs? Ah, yes, dwarfs indeed. But with that, those who affirm it might once catch sight of the expression that lowered under the brows of these two miniature victims. Like a menace, threatening, terrible, it seemed to presage a great storm that shall one day be unchained by the spirits too long pent up in the service to the greed of man. The next child I questioned was twelve. She had been only three weeks in the mill. Did you ever go to school? I asked. I sure did. Would you rather be in school now? She stopped a moment, looked full at me, and then she said, Yes, indeed I would. It was just then that we were interrupted by the second man. Some folks, he explained, thinks we are running children under twelve. They's all over twelve, except the few little ones that's in here helping. He knew something of the law then, this second man. And if the children were only helping, who was paying them for it?
who but the owners of the mills. At the next factory, the intricacy of work, cotton-woven bedspreads and crash towels, requires older and more experienced hands. The boss made no objection to showing the mill, but as I was accompanied through the rooms by a clerk, I had no opportunity to question what children there were. Of the two hundred hands, I saw six or seven who looked to be under twelve, and a score who might have just completed their first dozen years. About a mile out of Anniston is yet another mill employing one hundred hands. There, finding the gate open, I walked in without passing by the office or asking any sort of permit to visit. My solitary tour through the spinning room was interrupted by the superintendent, who asked me my business. When I told him it was simple curiosity, he led me on a fatiguing expedition through picking, carding, and twine rooms. But I had already questioned hastily ten miniature hands who were under twelve years old. Too large a proportion, perhaps, even though they might have only been helping. The largest factory was firm in its refusal to allow visitors of any sort within its gates. You see, the superintendent said with a knowing twinkle in his eye, we have some difficulty keeping our help, and we're always afraid folks might be prowling around to get some of our hands away from us. Besides that, he added, fortifying his refusal, the insurance companies don't permit us to let people through the mills. Where night is day. One mill there was, whose tall narrow windows continued through the night hours to glow in the darkness, reflecting long silver beams of light against the hillside houses, as though to search out and claim in their very sleep the mill hands. Let him who is a skeptic on the subject of child labor, let him who scoffs at the worth of the lower classes, stand one morning at six before the door of that mill when the night shift gets off. In the haggard procession that filed up the incline toward the settlement, the thing which impressed me most was the cheerfulness of every response that was made to any question I put. Conversation with these people never became, as it does inevitably with the poor whom charity societies reach, an occasion for lamentation and complaint. Why the old mill keeps us company, one woman protested. She was a pale wraith of a being, clad in black, her sparse hair dragged clear of her forehead. The fine film of cotton had settled over her garments, where they rested like a shroud, already enveloping one whose weary limbs would find rest only in death. "'We all don't mind sleeping in the daytime,' she smiled, "'when the children don't wake us up playing round.' By our side trudged a long-legged, barefooted boy, who gave his age as thirteen. At an exclamation of pity from me, with regard to the night work for children, he said, "'If you don't work, you can't earn nothing.' You sure do make more nights. You can get as much in five nights as you can in six days. Which information was accompanied by a comprehensive expression that traversed his wan face. How much time do you have for resting in the night? Not much of any, he said. But for eating? 
you've got just about time enough for swallowing your midnight lunch. The machinery don't never stop, and the work's mostly piecework. Here I caught sight of the hand most four, whom my red-headed friend had signaled to me as being on the night shift, tumbling along by his mother's side in the semi-obscurity of the dawn, he appeared like a sprite, a creature bred in a cave, his flesh bleached, his eyes dazed by perpetual darkness. Yet when I spoke to him, he turned his strange, bloated, mask-like face to me and smiled. "'He's only helping me,' the worker explained. "'He makes a dollar twenty a week. "'I've got three in myself,' she added, almost apologetically, "'to look out for since my husband died.'" Anniston is a typical Alabama town, in which there happen to be mills. The tenements rented by the mill hands are part of the company's property, but the schools belong to the township, and the mill children, like any other residents of the city, may go or not, as they please, to the public classes. There are no compulsory school laws in the state. We don't think it's a right in a democracy one of the Alabama club women explained to me, to force anyone to do anything. If the parents want their children to go to school, it's their privilege to send them. But we don't believe in compulsion. We believe in liberty. End of The Cry of the Children by Mrs. John Van Verst Read by Mary in Arkansas